0: You're listening to Reframe Your Life. I'm Sandy Reynolds, and this is episode 109. On this week's episode, we continue our Memoir Writers series. My co-host, Patty Hall, is back again today with a special guest, Louisa Deasy, author of A Letter from Paris. Let's get right into the episode. Welcome, Patty. So here we are. It's our... Th- third episode of our Women Memoir Writing Series, counting you. You were the first. So Mm -hmm. I am really looking forward to our guest today. And I think since you are acquainted with her, why don't you do the honors of the introduction?
1: I would love to. So Louisa Deasy is our guest today. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I love this story. We were Cavorting around on social media as writers do kind of supporting each other and I was saying oh I see your memoir came out in Canada and she said oh I see you're releasing yours in the time of COVID. Then being what writers are we got on the phone and had a drink together. It was the middle of the night for Louisa and maybe a little bit early in the day for me but we did it anyway there might have been something in my coffee. But I have been a fan of this memoir for a long time, a little bit of an uber memoir stalker, and I was absolutely thrilled to get Louisa on the phone. And uh, welcome. Why don't I let you chirp in now, Louisa, and say hello? You.
2: Hello. It was so mm-hmm. good to have that 3 a.m. chat.
1: I know, we are thrilled to have you. Let me tell you what hooked me about Louisa. Louisa is a two-time memoirist, which always fascinates me because you have to do it differently and do it so well to be able to do it twice. And I fell in love with uh, a letter from Paris, which came out in 2018 in Australia, published by Scribe. I fell in love with it yet again when I was ecstatic to see that uh, Chapters Indigo had uh, reissued it a Canadian edition a couple of months ago. And it's on every memoir list I've seen in Canada as a to-be-read for spring and well-deserved. I'm a fan of this memoir because it does research. It's a daughter and her father. It's um, post-World War II. It's Europe. It has this odyssey and this search for family, and it's a deep love story of a daughter trying to learn about the father that she didn't know. So I've been a fan for a long time. Louise's first memoir was Love and Other U-Turns, published, I think, five years earlier, perhaps a little more and was nominated for the Nita B. Kibble Award for Women Writers in Australia. Louisa is widely published, she's an essayist, she's an articleist, and more than anything, she renders herself uh, the most competent researcher I've ever met in this book. Maybe, Sandy, you could jump into a synopsis of it. For those who haven't jumped in yet, I think it's going to be on everyone's Canadian to-be-read list, but maybe you could jump in and tell us a bit more about where research is so important in this memoir. All
0: right, so when Louisa Deasy receives a message from a French woman called Coralie, who has found a cache of letters in an attic written about Louisa's father, neither woman can imagine the events it will set in motion. The letters dated 1949 detail a passionate affair between Louisa's father, Denison, and Coralie's grandmother, Michelle, in post-war London they spark Louisa to find out more about her father who died when she was six. From the seemingly simple question, who was Denison Deasy, follows a trail of discovery that leads, to Loui- leads Louisa to the libraries of Melbourne, the streets of London, the cafes and restaurants of Paris, and a poet's villa in the south of France. From her father's secret service in World War II to his relationships with some of the most famous Bohemian artists in post-war Europe, Louisa unearths a portrait of a fascinating man, both at the epicenter and the mercy of the social and political currents of his time. A letter from Paris is about the stories we tell ourselves and the secrets the past can uncover. A compelling tale of inheritance and creativity, loss and reunion, it shows the power of the written word to cross the bridges of time. So if you're hearing that and you're not familiar with this story, you're probably thinking this should be on Netflix more than a memoir. It's such an intriguing story. And just that synopsis, I know, will captivate people right away.
2: Oh, thank you.
1: It is, isn't it? It's uh, it's captivating because it has all the elements of a story that we kind of all believe we have in the background. Don't we all think that there's a family secret or and folks that we haven't known really well in our lives or that we've lost, don't we always want to know their background? Welcome, Louisa. We're going to dive into the deep questions now. Can't wait to hear more about the behind the scenes of this book, which I've said four times how much I really, really admire. And here's one of the things I admired most is that It has two chronological stories. It has your story from the time that Coralie, the French sisters, as you start to call them, the two sisters get in touch with you. You follow the timeline of that through the research into your father. You actually go to France and retrace some of his steps. And it takes us to you finding his lost quote-unquote travel manuscript and up to, I guess, where you were when the book went into publication, probably 2016, 2017. Meanwhile, it's also the story of your father told chronologically in your discovery of him. And I wondered, how does his life, how does his life inspire this into a book? I mean, would it have been a book if you just had this interesting search about someone else's life? Or was the fact that it was exploring your father who you hadn't known because you were a little girl when he died, did that turn it into a book that you absolutely had to write?
2: Oh gosh, there's lots of questions in that. Um, so first I just want to say what what you're both saying about how many layers it has and the dual chronology—that is what made—and you know that it should be a series, that's what made it so difficult. <laughs> um, but in terms of why I had to write it, was that was that sort of what you're asking? Or, um? mm-hmm.
1: What made the book begin? Could you? <laughs> yeah. I always think that there's this book that we we have to write it. It makes yeah. us do it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I remember. Um, that January actually when when I got the email just before I got the email from Coralie I just finished reading Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic and I love what she says in there about how ideas are everywhere everyone gets ideas we all have stories um you know the muse visits everyone but it's whether or not you show up and you say yes and and then that was really funny because I just finished reading that book when I got the email from Coralie and I remember groaning just groaning inside, cause I was like, oh my God, I have to do this story. And you know, it's a lot of work doing a book, um, to put it mildly. Um, but yeah, it was one of those inward groans of, oh, I've got to follow this through to the end. Like, even though, and, and it took a very long time. Um, well, I don't know if you'd say a long time, probably not in publishing, but um, a lot of work for me to get other people on board. Um, And that was the hardest part for me because um, where the wound was for me was not being able to talk about my dad, not being able to ask anyone about him. I mean, it would have been a completely different story if I'd known about him, um, but I didn't know anything about him. And that's kind of the crux of the story is why you know, why secrets are kept from us in families, you know, why these stories become bigger and bigger with the untelling and all of that. Uh, and so to even, you know, approach a publisher or to even put into writing that my dad might have been important or might have been interesting was just challenged every part of my child's self. So it was very difficult to... To start pitching it, like I felt like a little kid, just saying, "Can can we talk about my dad? Can we talk? No. Why do you want your dad's not interesting? You know, like it just was really difficult in terms of emotional. I don't know if I've answered your question, but
1: you you, you did, and it goes into that place that I mentioned to you when I first met you, which is, um, you really had to, you know buck up the strength to be the champion of the father you were discovering because you had heard otherwise from him. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because it really does deepen the passion of you writing the book. What were you told your father was in your understanding?
2: So Mostly it was nothing. Mostly I heard nothing. So I was six when he died. Uh, And if you read the book and you realize what generation he was from, most of his siblings and also my grandparents were also dead. So I didn't have any of his peers to sort of feed me any stories. Uh, My mum was 27 years younger than him, so she didn't really know much about his life prior to when they met in 1969. Um, And from the only relatives that were still alive uh, when I was sort of probably old enough to articulate anything uh, were from rather conservative side of the family Uh, and just the fact that they didn't say anything it's not that they said bad things but they didn't really say anything good made me think that there was some secret some criminal offense that was being covered up like i know that sounds crazy but when you're a child you make up all sorts of stories for the silence
1: sure you do. What was, what were you afraid you might find about him? I know that's a a long answer because there was, you know, you always wanted to find something for the French sisters, but what were you afraid you'd find that your worst Um, fears were true?
2: Just to be, you know, completely blunt. My mom had separated from my dad when I was six months old. So I thought there would have to be some reason for that, you know, and I thought I would find that in the library. I thought, you know, he'd done something outrageous. Perhaps he had gambled away, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars because I'd heard these whispers that he'd squandered fortunes. I don't even know where those whispers came from because he never had a fortune. Um, you know, he was the son of a vicar. But as a child, I heard this story, he squandered fortunes. Um, so I was I thought I'd find some really awful reason that my mum had left him when I was six months old. Um, Yeah, and I also thought perhaps, you know, there was something he'd done overseas or something related to the artist's world or I just didn't know. And I think it's just that not knowing that makes something very, very scary. Like if it was a tangible thing that I could um, dissect and go and, you know, present to my siblings and say, hey, did you know Dad did this and is this good or bad? Um, That would have been simple. But there was, it was just such a mess. Like I can't even how difficult it was to find out what what happened in his life.
1: Right, right. <laughs> um,
0: yeah. I, I was thinking when I was reading the story, I had a somebody reach out to me a couple of years on Ancestry and um, the website Ancestry.ca here, and they had um, a story about my family and a connection to someone in my family that was unknown. And we discovered we had more family members that we didn't know of. And I, when I read your story, I was thinking about that email that I got and that feeling that, you know, like, is this a scam? Like, what does this person want? Like, why are they, like, what's their motive in reaching out to me? Did you have any of that when you, when you first got contacted?
2: Well, it's so funny because, and I totally relate to that. And I, I know lots of stories because, particularly Ancestry.com and now DNA testing, it's also um, commonplace now. People are reaching out on Facebook all the time. Uh, but the funny thing was, and perhaps the the best part of not knowing anything about Dad and you know having it was actually very very difficult for me to find out about him, even if I'd wanted to. Um, was that when this person Coralie reached out from from Paris and listed all these things he'd done in 1949 I there was not a shred of doubt and I thought she can't have a bad uh there's no yeah there was no doubt in my mind that she was coming from a good place because why else would someone give me all this information about my dad which I had never had which I'd always wanted uh and she painted the portrait of a really lovely man and I just thought this is the complete opposite to everything I've thought my whole life. She's, she's contacting me to say, you know, our grandmother fell in love with this man and you know, he did all these things and he was wonderful. Are you any relation? We'd love to see a photo. And I just thought, I just thought that was such a, um, yeah, a very human, um, contact and a very, uh, you know, she didn't want anything material from me They were very, very far away. Um, but it was more just that connection in terms of families because their grandmother had just died the day before she found me on Facebook. uh, And I think it was a way for them to keep their grandmother alive. And I found out through the course of um, writing the book and going over to France that um, (laughs) there'd actually been arguments in their family about contacting me, because like you say, um, Yes, like her sister Clementine had said, no, you can't just blow up her life like that. You don't know what she's going through. You don't know uh, what her relationship is like with this man or who he is because they didn't realise it was my dad at that point. They thought because of the age gap it was a grandfather or a great uncle or something. Uh, But, yeah, I I didn't but I completely understand what you're saying because, uh, yeah, I've heard lots of stories about people, you know, tracking down people that that they were in a concentration camp with and other person doesn't really want to go back there to that place.
1: The not wanting to be found. I mean, there are people who don't want to be found it. Um, the, when you find out he was a writer, I mean that that was pivotal for me. I mean, here you are, you're making a living, and you're very open about the difficulty of making a living as a writer. And then you see that your your father was prolific. And first of all, it was just amazing to me to have a father whose papers, personal papers are in the state library. But you don't just find a little bit of writing by your father. You find letters, you find journals. you find uh, correspondence with um, famous artists. and more than one manuscript can you give us the highlights of what you found out about him as a writer
2: yeah look it still makes me really emotional because um you know as you know being a writer um it's it's a long road and it's it's a hard road and you wish that you had peers to talk about the this is why i love talking to you so much patty in uh you know storytelling and all of that it's you want someone to look at your work or say, Hey, I did a story like that one time or Hey, I've tried this and, you know, just having someone to talk to. And then, and so I was 30, I think I was 36 when Coralie contacted me and I went to the library and I found all this stuff and there were essays that he'd written that were like my earliest essays that I had pitched publications. The first book that I had published was about traveling around Australia with a man called Jim one of dad's first short stories that he wrote was about a road trip he took with a man called Jim mm-hmm. who made wow. no man of his master and was a total renegade, but totally the same type of character as the man that I travelled around Australia with. So there were these similarities and these parallels, uh, you know, there were even words that he'd written in his diaries that i have written in mine and this is 60 years earlier. And <laughs> like, how do you inherit that? Um, so it was just, it was this feeling of, oh, my God, I have this peer and, I, and it was such a bittersweet feeling because it was like, I wish I'd been able to talk to him. We would have got along so well and he could have taught me so much, you know. And also I could see his struggle. I could see because I'd lived that, you know, I know how hard it is to get published, um, and then I had this sense of pride because I found some scripts for radio plays that he'd had performed, you know, by the BBC and by the ABC. And I thought, oh, my God, he had like productions made of his work. And, and I never knew any of this. And, yeah, so it was just a whole big meshing of <laughs> crazy emotions in my head. It was like this recognition and this feeling of kinship, uh, a little bit of anger and outrage because I'd never known it. Uh, And then I felt like, oh, I've got to tell everyone, you know, but, you know, there's not really anyone left to tell, but I told my brother and sister and I used to, like, take my, um, the stuff that I'd found in the library each week, I'd I'd make a whole list and go over there for dinner and and say, did you know he did this and he did this and this was published? Because it's just, it's really crazy. And it was all just sitting at the library in very complex, um, messy boxes all this this
0: time. (laughs) found that part of the story so fascinating. A couple things things, one that you just talked about was that he was writing the similar story to you or, mm-hmm. you know, what you talked about with Elizabeth Gilbert in the muse. It's like this story needed to be told and his story might not have got out there, but your story will. And um, there's that, but I just also that the amount of information the archives that you were able to get and that they were just sitting there and that nobody like had ever made this connection that he had a survive surviving relatives that might want access to this like <laughs> patty and i talked about that um before we got on the call that whole thing about libraries and their archives and who owns that material and all of that so I don't I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about intellectual property and the challenges you had (laughs) with gaining access to some of your own family's um, material really your inheritance in some way
2: I can yeah I mean this is a whole it's almost another book in itself this whole topic um it's very interesting because you know Coralie had found a stack of letters and she was determined. When I spoke to her in France, she was like, I found these, these letters and they they described your, not just your father but your aunt and your grandfather. And I thought, this is someone's family. I need to share this information with their family, even if it's their grandchildren or whatever. So that was very honourable of her, I thought. But in terms of the library material, so and I don't know if I really uh, gave a lot of explanation in the book. I hope I did. My mum had uh, actually sold that material to the State Library the year after my dad died in 1985. So uh, they purchase these collections if they think they're of historical significance. And I don't know how many collections they have. I mean, they might have thousands of collections. I was actually amazed that a manuscripts librarian had gone through the material and managed to write a 45 page inventory because my dad's handwriting is so messy so to even have you know letters to and from and listing the names and what some of the diaries contained that would have taken months if not a whole year for the manuscript librarian to annotate and a lot of it is wrong i've found out since (laughs) myself but in terms of the property stuff like i mean there's no way that anyone could have, you know, just randomly gone through the manuscripts and said, oh, I wonder if he has a, a child that might not. Everyone assumed that we, had, we knew it all. Like mm. me and my siblings, everyone assumed that we knew what was in those boxes. Everyone assumed that we, you know, I guess you would just assume that you'd mm. think, well, she knows that her dad's stuff's in the library, so she knows what's in there but it's 1.6 metres of material stacked high. Most of it is handwritten, a lot of it in pencil, (laughs) (laughs) you know, in those old ration books, you know, and... um and what I uh, was talking about this with Patty last week, and I really appreciated even just being able to share this is very healing for me. <laughs> um, so, just because I'm his daughter doesn't give me any special uh, leeway to access the material, it's the library's property. So, I have to make a special appointment at the moment because of COVID, I can't even go in there. No, the library is not open. I have to make a special appointment request. One box maximum at a time. I can never look at the whole material and resort it. That's just not, I'm not allowed. Uh, one box maximum. I have to be monitored. No water or food or drink in that room. No phones, no cameras. Uh, you have to sit at this big table in front of the Manuscripts Librarian and there's cameras so that nothing gets stolen uh, and you have to put your bag in a locker. So for me to get my head around, even one box of material would take weeks of just sitting in that room and and leafing through it. Uh, And then, you know, probably six to 12 months later, I started typing things up because I thought, well, this is the only way I can get it out of here is to like actually transcribe it. But it, it was such a laborious process and it was so strange because sometimes I'd be crying just quietly because I didn't want anyone to talk to me because I'd be reading stuff and I'd go, oh, my God. Because it was such a strange thing because if you think about when you read stuff at home in the comfort of your bed or your chair and something moves you and you and you sort of have a moment and you sit back and you and you might shed a tear, but I'm in this room that felt like an access visit at a jail like I've got someone looking at me I've got cameras there I never felt like I could process it properly in the library um, even though it was my own dad's writing and words so it was very complicated you know it took a long time to get a lot of the stuff out I'd, I'd had to make an appointment to photograph it in a different room and that had to be approved so that would be another two weeks i'd have to wait if i did actually want to photograph anything i couldn't photocopy i had to photograph it and then my sister helped me she um printed a lot of it out um on her work computer hopefully they're not listening um (laughs) and so then we'd actually have the material at home as a printout because that that was the real gold when you could actually read something at home because it's, it's weird you don't process things the same way when you're in a public institution as when you're sitting at home especially when it's your family like really personal. what what was the most difficult most
1: challenging to process was it his writing was it his personal letters his journals what was it the closer you got to his inner world the more difficult to process or like anything else was it you know you do reflect on his um his time in the war the the suffering the conditions during the war what really hit you
2: yeah the most difficult to process look the most difficult part was that I couldn't ask anyone I couldn't say hey what does this word mean or hey dad what do you what do you mean like uh Yeah, just the most difficult part was I couldn't ask him about it. Um, But do you know what's strange? Finding out that he had tuberculosis. I I never knew that. I didn't know that he spent six months or more in, like, various sanatoriums in Zurich uh, unable to, and I've just been working, actually, on his memoir yesterday, um, this part where, It's it's really graphic, but the hospitals in Zurich where um, what else was going on then? What was that other really common? Oh typhoid or typhus. So he was in these hospital rooms with with men dying of typhus And then you know, they die the next day and he's just in there with them (laughs) And that was for the six months. That was his first six months overseas he spent in these sanatoriums after catching tuberculosis on the boat Um, so yeah, just all the medical stuff and, and imagining what that actually felt like, like he, he, he described, you know, it was like a knife was being, um, pummeled into his, his throat, um, the pain of tuberculosis, but, um, yeah, just all of that. And also I didn't know that you could recover from tuberculosis. Uh, and so he was only 28 when he caught that. Um, but yeah, to... to, In a general sense, just not being able to ask him about it and not being able to cross-reference or check anything, you know, having to trust myself to be able to do the background research. Because I remember texting my friend who's a GP saying, how do you recover from tuberculosis? Like it was just bizarre, all the things I had to check. Um, Of
1: course. It to me that you'd of course have to fact check that because that's not, not common knowledge. It was 50 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And it was just post-war, which is a period of time we do hear less about, sadly. I mean, there's, there's a whole body of fiction and a whole body of memoirs coming out of World War II, but we're talking about your dad's period of time being just after the war. And it was a time of sort of the resurgence of the arts and the revisiting of, of creativity. And he walked among some pretty powerful circles in that time. And I thought that was, I mean, you weren't name dropping, you were making it so fascinating that he was living in an era of the artists that he was moving in circles with.
2: Oh, thank you. Because I think a lot of them, you know, they're probably not as well known now. Um, and yeah, I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to come across as name drop, dropping. And my dad was definitely not like that. He'd written a lot of stuff in code because he didn't want their real names known, um, because he didn't. You know, he didn't want to subject anyone to scandal or anything like that. But um, I was trying to give it context. Like I was trying to give his life context, and sometimes that is helped along by going, "Well, that was when this figure was doing this." Um, yeah, I don't know. I hope I succeeded there. but. Uh.
0: You mentioned just a minute ago about the space of being in the library and trying to process. And it was something that I thought of when I was reading your book. And it's something that Patty and I have talked about, because we both did our master's thesis on a different angle, but on the impact of space, so for me it was on how teams work together, and Patty had a different uh, approach. But we're both very interested in the impact our physical spaces have on us. And so I wonder, you were writing the book, being in France, have been a, it would have been a very different way to learn about your father mm-hmm. than learning about him in the library.
2: Oh gosh, I want to know all about both of your master's theses <laughs> Sorry. I'm fascinated by the impact of physical space as well. Um, yeah. And I, and I think I'm really sensitive to physical spaces too. Um, I know that sounds a bit strange, but um, yeah, so I was right. So I kind of, I had to have a deadline. So that was why I pitched this book before I'd written it. I, I needed to be accountable to a publisher because uh you know, I know how, you know, this, this project could have taken me 10 years if, if I'd, you know, not had a deadline. So I had the book deal, uh, you know, without really knowing much. I'd, I'd been to the library a few times, but, um, you know, I was just sort of sifting through 1948, 1949 uh, and writing it on that. But like you say, I, I remember, so I drove to Canberra. So there's collections of my father's papers in about seven or 11, I can't remember, different libraries across the world. So the State Library has the breadth of the material, but there were very vital clues in different libraries. So um, I remember my sister splashed out and paid the hundreds of dollars we had to pay to get, uh, I think it's, oh, it was about a hundred letters from Richard Aldington to my dad, sent as a PDF. And so I got to luxuriously read them at home on my computer. Um, And just that, that impact, like, so interesting what you're saying about physical space, just being able to be at home, comfortable, because it's a very emotional thing for me to go through this material, and it brought up so much grief. So to go through his papers at home with undisturbed, the door shut, uh, you know, a cup of tea by my side, warm, comfortable, that library room was freezing, by the way, Mm. (laughs) um, It was a different experience, and I actually uh, I think I processed the material a lot better when I was reading it at home because I was able to reflect on how that uh, that how that uh, connected with me and my life. Whereas when I was in the library, it's like that awareness. You know how people say they can't write when other people are around. It's that awareness of being looked at. So I'd be reading his stuff, but it wasn't 100% focused because, you know, 20% of my brain was, okay, I can't pull out my pen. I've got to, uh, I'm thirsty. I can't go to the toilet. She's watching me. Whereas when you're at home and, you know, you, no one's disturbing you, you can burst into tears and no one's going to look at you. You've got tissues. Uh, I think you process stuff a lot quicker and a lot better. So um, I did, I'd go through spurts, sorry, it's a big question and I'm taking a long time to answer it, but I'd go through spurts. So I'd do big chunks of time at the library and just smash down like three weeks where I was transcribing heaps, getting as much photographed as I could with the convoluted, complicated appointment things. And then when I actually drafted the book, I, I was at home for three months. I, I just didn't leave the the flat for three months and I had all the material on my computer um, and I had to do it that way because uh, it really takes you out of the story and out of yourself to to go back into that bureaucratic bloody reading room, <laughs> you know. And also the way they treated me, it was like it wasn't important. It was like, I know, I know, you know, you have to think something's important enough to write, to, to do it justice, but to go there and get past their rigmarole and all of their rules, I had to pretend like I didn't really care, like, Uh, I was just doing a little bit of light research. I wasn't going to use the material for anything. They're really strangely protective. Like you're not allowed to use it for anything Um, even though I was and I have the copyright. It's all very strange. Um, but that library, the State Library in Victoria, it's a very um, esteemed institution. I think if you're a librarian in Australia, it's probably the top place that you would want to work. It's the oldest library that we have. Uh, so those manuscripts librarians that get to work in that particular room, they're like the top of the bunch. They're like the top of the hierarchy, and they really take take their jobs seriously <laughs> as bouncers of the material. So. Um, yeah.
1: No, I I love I love that, but I also love that this is the context of the search, right? And you do this so well. I was all angsty with you when you know you and it's that whole it's your father for God's sake. Like do these people have no compassion? It wasn't like you were going to run amuck with things, but the constant the, you're trying to find out things and you're finding them. And then this momentum builds because you mention again and again and again, the travel memoir, the travel memoir, the travel memoir that he's written. He he's been angsty over folks have been saying how good it is. His, his artists and writer friends were saying he should write. And then you find it. And I love, you know, it's like 2001, the space odyssey. You finally find in this meter and a half of material, you finally find his manuscript. And I think to myself, were you also kind of not wanting to find it because did you ever want to get to the end of the papers? Because that's all there was. And I had that feeling of, oh, does she does she want to find it or not find it? And No matter what, it was going to be gold to you. It didn't matter if it was the worst writing you'd ever read. And then instead you tell us as the book goes on that he was really moving you, that you recognized his narrative style and his power of description, that you really, really thought he was good. And you become this silent champion of a writer who happens to be the father you didn't know. And it was a beautiful thing to find his manuscript, but how do you honor the manuscript? And I know I'm kind of leading to where you're at right now in your writing life, but for me, that was the pinnacle, was this piece of gold, and there's been all of this tug of war about who gets access and who owns it, and you and your siblings have the copyright and all that, but what do you do with, with the work that your father didn't put out into the world? How do you honor that? And Sandy, you said it so well. It's a piece of your inheritance, isn't it?
2: Yeah, look it's um so it's it's so interesting because you know how I was saying um I, I was at home with this luxurious 100 or so letters that my sister had paid for that got scanned for us from a different library and they were from Richard Aldington to my dad and Richard Aldington was a famous American writer who exiled himself in uh in France and he was sort of dad's mentor and in one of the letters he said there was all this abuse about the Richards Press, which was apparently going to publish the travel memoir. And... In this letter, and I had never, fa- I hadn't found or seen this travel memoir at this point. He just said, "A curse on that that Richards Press! I can't believe what they've done to you." And I was thinking, "What if? Where is it? What's?" Because he apparently had this book deal for um, for this travel memoir in 1955. Um, and I think when I found it, what scared me was I was scared it was going to be really pompous and pretentious writing, um, <laughs> and I was scared that I wouldn't like it, and I was scared that it would be, you know. I know I'm guilty of this, and I'm sure everyone has to try and get published. You write in certain styles, and I thought, oh no, he might have written maybe, you know, maybe it's all just about wine and cheese because that was that was when, um, when gastro tourism was a really big trend in writing. Um, and but still, when I found it in the wrong box, it was in like some 1970s box with, I mean, talk about friggin' journey to the bottom of the universe. It was um, it was in a box. <laughs> A really awful correspondence with my mum about their breakup wow. why I didn't want to look in that box um, and I actually had my sister with me when I found it and we both were like holding each other like to try and open up that box because we we're both frightened um, of just you know you don't want to look at awful fights between your mum and dad um, but yeah I found it and I was like this is actually really good hey you know this <laughs> My sister illegally took photos. She didn't care that we were right in front of the manuscript librarians. And then I made an appointment the next week to do the whole, um, there's only two hours when you can photocopy material, photograph material. Um, But yeah, it did feel like an inheritance, but my biggest thing that I wanted to do as soon as I found it was get it out of the library because I felt like it started taking on this metaphorical thing of I felt like they were were holding my dad captive in that library. So I took it, uh, I I got it photographed, um, filled up my entire phone because it's like 300 pages and it's really thin wafer pages, you know, from the 1950s. It was bound because it was going to be published. Um, And then I printed it out at Officeworks, which I don't know what you've got in Canada, but it's like Kinko's or something. Uh, And then I took it to France with me because it it was a few days before I went to France that I found it. So I didn't actually have a chance to read it all. So I sort of, um, it was pretty lovely, actually. I took it, it was about three kilos um, because (laughs) I put it on really, it weighed down my luggage. But um, one of the happiest days that I had in Paris was when I took it to Café de Flore. And I just read heaps of the parts about Paris in because he wrote all about living in Paris in 1951 and that was when he was mistaken for the spy and everything. And so I was just re- sitting there reading like I was reading a fiction novel but it was my dad and that was really, really special because I thought not only have I got it out of the library, I've brought it all the way to France, which mm. felt really nice. It's beautiful. <laughs> I don't know if that answered your question.
1: Oh, that, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, a, there's another leading piece here is that, you know, if your father knew that it would go this way, would he have lived differently, right? And it begs the question, um, and I'm stealing Sandy's question, but it begs the question, do you live differently? Have you, does it, has it caused you to reframe the way you live, to reframe your life in that you now have a, a different approach to what we leave behind? To the transference of information, to the protection of our art, to the telling of our story.
2: Absolutely, and this is why, Sandy, I love the title of your podcast. Um, I think the process—the process of writing—changes the way we frame things. The process of uh, reflecting on our stories. It's such a profound process. It's basically it's in, internal psychoanalysis when we when we write our own stories down and see them uh, with your objectivity of of that sort of reflection and working on this book as hard as it was it completely re- reframed my whole narrative not just mm. about my dad but about my own creative life and the value of that because i had always felt ashamed of him for no reason no no real reason which you'll find in the book but it was more a feeling and and those parts of him that i identified with which were that he was a writer and creative i was ashamed of in myself but through the process of writing this book and also being having it published and having people reflect back to me yeah your dad sounds really interesting he was just sounds like he was a bit ahead of his time or you know like that was such a conservative time that if you did you know throw 300 pounds away on a painting or supporting an artist, you would have been seen as a complete maniac um, so it 's changed it 's changed my view of creativity and uh, what you know what 's of value i think uh, and also I guess it 's like um, yeah it 's so much metaphor um, yeah it 's just realizing that I do have an inheritance that it 's not um, yeah there 's not just an empty black hole where i thought my dad was you know um yeah it's, it's very big it's huge i mean writing is huge writing a memoir is huge you're basically reframing your life which is why i love yep. the podcast title
1: i mean you you just you talk about identity without talking about identity i mean finding the truth about your father for yourself was about defining you i mean there was a piece of you that was like this black hole and what a gift right that this woman reaches out to you and um there's you know sort of the poignancy of this is that i remember your self-talk saying i have to find michelle i have to find michelle and you didn't but you found giselle and you found you saw the sisters and you met the entire family and they embraced you and you are no biological relative of theirs and but so it's about identity and finding family and where you belong, and that's a reframe, isn't it? That you're not the little girl whose father was whatever people said he was. You're Dennis and Deasy's daughter, and he was these things, and you know that now. And it must be very, you know, it just must warm your heart to be able to do justice to his life because you kept on searching. But what if one. Thing hadn't happened right for me it's the power of chance if she hadn't gone on facebook to look for you what if she'd lost the fight and they decided not to look for you for me that's for me that's really powerful Mm
2: -hmm. yeah it's it's kind of scary to think about that and it's funny because all of those those um quick little things that can turn the turn a story were all in my head because i had just finished big magic because she talks about how that how how fragile stories are, you know, if you don't catch it in time, you know, you might miss the chance. So it's funny that I was thinking about all of that and, you know, that I had just changed my profile picture to to Paris on Facebook and that was why she contacted me and not my brother and sister who don't actually really use Facebook or answer messages. So, yeah, the whole thing, there's a lot of chance. Um, but just in terms of what you're saying about, you know, doing justice to dad and everything. I sort of, I mean, I never, yes, I wanted to do him justice. I wanted to bring his story out. But I think from a more uh, universal point of view, it's this whole thing of daring to challenge the family story. Um, That was what was so difficult. That was what was so scary. And that was my biggest, um, you know, if I'm a character in a story, that was my biggest change in terms of the character was, um, you know, daring to go to France and daring to believe a different version to my of my family story than the one that I had been fed my entire life, it's, it's really scary. It's, there's a whole survival instinct there that, you know, we absorb. And I think this is why history repeats itself and we go, you know, ancestors and generations go on believing and doing things, is because it is really, really difficult to challenge a family story. Mm. I love
0: that um, daring to challenge the family story because we, you have to really step out and you have to sometimes sever or risk losing relationships within your family when you do that. And it's like you're the person who's sort of breaking the cycle of something.
2: Yeah. And it's, um, it's interesting because I'm studying the hero's journey at the moment and I used a lot of the hero's journey to try and structure the story. I found the structure so hard. Um, because it was his story and mine. I mean, where do you even begin? But I really identified with that whole part, you know, with the hero's journey in the beginning, um, when you have to leave the tribe and you have to, you know, and it's that whole thing, if you can't get anything new to bring back to the tribe, unless you've, um, you know, left it and exposed yourself to a whole new possible realm of belief or um, adventure or, you know, all that stuff. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um,
0: it's just going to jump in because I just finished reading the, the heroine's journey. Oh yeah. And you know, that idea, and it's almost like I'm thinking about like, there's like both going on in your story. There's, you know your dad's story the hero's journey but there's also your story and you know the, the difference she says in the heroine's journey is that um women tend to go in to find that like we don't have to embark on a journey out we we're going in to bring out something that's there of value
2: yeah this is so interesting i was listening to another podcast the other day um about, yeah, what is the difference between the hero and the heroine's journey? And I actually don't think there's a difference. I think both the hero and the heroine's journey involve an internal uh, internal journey and an external journey. Mm-hmm. And we, I think typically we say the external one is masculine and the internal one is feminine, but I don't think any story works unless you've got both, um, an external and an internal. Um, but, yeah... I don't know. That's why I, I sort of disagree. I know this isn't popular, but I disagree that the hero and the heroine's journey are different. I think um, both involve something. Some So with the feminine, it's, there's a broken part of the feminine that needs to be retrieved. And with the masculine, it's the same. Um, but, you know, it, it both involve, I think the steps, the steps are involved very similar, and you know, you might say battle. Well, well, what's like a female? What's the equivalent to a you know face off in the battlefield? Well, that the face off can be internal. You know, it can be facing the boxes, like me going in and opening up that one that had all the eulogies. Like that, that felt like I was facing off a thousand monsters, mm-hmm. um, and it was literally just me opening a box of papers. Um, but yeah, it's all metaphor. I, I don't yeah. know. I love. All the metaphors with mm both. Mm-hmm. No, I appreciate that. I've just
0: it's just something I've you mentioned it, and I've just been reading the book. I did the question I was going to ask you was I listened to you on another podcast this week, and oh. in in that podcast interview, you talked about photos being very rare during that time, so you didn't have um, there weren't a lot of photos, and it made me um, I don't know it just prompted some thinking in me about. How you got so much description about your father from letters and from words, and not as much from photos. But now we're living in a time where we are documenting way more with photos, and the captions are very small. You know, we it's kind of flipped in a way. So um, our descriptions are are not words there, and and I I just wondered. what you were what you would think about that about having history preserved in photos more than in words and how that might shape our our own personal histories and our own the way we we understand in the future our own stories
2: yeah i think it's really interesting gosh i could talk to both of you all day <laughs> <laughs> stuff it's funny because I think it was this morning when I was insomnia at 3am I was reading this thing about privacy about how in 2020 um, you know the real luxury what we are afraid of so people talk about you know not sharing too much because uh, there's a real issue of privacy but the actual cultural uh, tendency right now is we're afraid of not being known we're afraid that people don't know what we're doing all the time (laughs) so we're sharing everything (laughs) But the thing is, um, I was listening to this amazing uh, BBC podcast, The Letters from World War Two, which uh, really drove home oh, that yeah. you know, those letters would have been read 16 or 17 times each. Uh, but that's what's missing with all this visual documentation. We're not getting any of the feeling. We're not getting any of the, um, the quiet contemplation or reflection. We're not getting any of the... Uh, the you know the perhaps other motivations is it's a whole space and time thing you know everything's so quick now and I think that's what's really lost is that sense of time of reflecting on things. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And you know, I don't think I ever thought about. I mean, there's no better sales pitch for memoir over blog or over an Instagram post right is the opportunity for reflection you said you know letters being read again and again and again that re-exposing to the emotion of the writer what a glorious thing and we don't get that with our our sound bites we don't get that on our even though social media you're exactly right we don't want to not be known but some of these things are up for like 10 seconds and they're gone you know, yeah. so are we being known or are we being seen? And I think uh, that's where, where words make where words make the difference. It makes me think, what what do you want to be seen about your father in his memoir? Because I secretly know that you still want to do something with his manuscript. What do you want to be seen about him?
2: Okay. Uh I think I want him to be seen and because I you know, I only use little snippets of his actual words in a letter from Paris so um, I'm working on bringing his actual travel memoir out into light. I want him to be seen for the fun, like I was actually as well as the tears in the library I would burst out laughing many times <laughs> reading either an anecdote in his diary or a letter. I want people to see what a what a funny complex interesting person he was. Um, and, yeah, just I just want people to enjoy to have that experience that I had of getting to know this really interesting person who thankfully left us a lot of really fascinating anecdotes because he wrote a lot of dialogue as well, which I love, which is funny because I do too. Sometimes he'd just write um, a line that someone had said to him in a shop, you know, in 1948 or 1954, which is actually really valuable now because we don't have audio visual or, sorry, audio... Of that time um so yeah I just want people to see the world through his eyes um, like I did and see how funny it was <laughs> despite getting tuberculosis and <laughs> all of the awful stuff
0: this has been a great interview and I do also feel like we could keep talking and I also know that the Sun is setting here because of the time zone and I want to just wrap it up in patty and i like to just ask some quick questions that you don't have to go into a lot of detail in your answers and so i'm going to start with one that i have if you could receive a letter from anyone dead or alive who would it be and it, you know obviously not your father
2: okay oh gosh oh oh how do i don't answer this quickly dead or alive who could it be oh man um Um, I can't think of anyone quickly now. Sorry. Okay.
1: You can come back to it. Let me ask a memoir question. Do you have a favorite memoir?
2: Favorite memoir. Oh gosh. I have, uh, it's always what I'm reading at the moment. I'm a little bit obsessed with, um, I think you should talk to someone by Laurie Gottlieb at the moment, but that's Mm -hmm. because what I'm reading right now. Um, in terms of creative nonfiction, I love it. Um, I love blonde by Joyce Carol that got me into writing creative nonfiction that book when I first read it.
1: Okay. I've got to look that up. That's great.
0: Both of us making a note.
2: It's written in the voice of Marilyn Monroe. So it's, it's amazing. It's yeah.
0: Okay. Brilliant. Great. Okay. Um, Is there a question? No one has asked you about your book that surprises you.
2: Oh, no, oh, no one asked me. Probably what you you two have been asking me today is um, no one's really focused on how difficult the stuff was to get out of the library. Um, and I sort of, yeah, I find that I think a lot of people assumed that that was sort of the simpler part of the task, but it was actually, it was the hardest part of all of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um but no, more I'm, I'm generally surprised by what people take away from things, but people just project their own things into stories. Like I did some events in Melbourne when it came out and I got some strange questions at library events. But, um, <laughs> but, but that's the thing when you write memoir, you sort of open yourself up to strange, inclusive personal questions. <laughs>
0: so have you thought about that letter have you got an answer yet who you'd like to get a letter
2: from um maybe michelle
1: Mm. oh yeah yeah
2: because i feel like she played a part in all of this but yet you know, i'd love to know what her reaction was to me not finding anything um but i feel like she would have been gracious um but yeah
0: okay good Patty, over to you.
1: I'm going to ask you one that we adopted for another um, for another podcast victim. I mean guest. <laughs> if, if if your book had a spirit animal, what would it be?
2: Oh, my book had a spirit animal. Um, maybe a snake. Yeah, a snake. Oh, why kept- is that? I kept thinking of the boxes as like, I had this recurring nightmare when I first started going to the library that I was trying to walk on just snakes all across the ground. And I was trying to cross the ground without getting bitten by a snake. And that's what it was like opening up those boxes. Wow. It's bizarre, it's a weird metaphor, but um, yeah, I just kept thinking of snakes and how beautiful they are, but how dangerous they are and, You've got to be careful where you tread, and and they sense everything. They don't. Um, it's all about sense with them, uh, not not actual concrete. Yeah, and they're very mysterious as well. What are
1: you working on right now?
2: Oh yes. Um, so I'm working on bringing Dad's uh, actual memoir, the travel memoir, into a. So I funded on Kickstarter to to digitize it, so to get it out of the library and into concrete form uh, that can be, you know, read by anyone in or out of the library across the world. So I'm turning, um, so I'm basically, I've spent the last couple of years transcribing the material and sorting it into chronology, uh, and I want to bring that out so that people can get the best of his stuff from 1939 to 1955, which is really... Global time, and when the, the breadth of his really funny, interesting storytelling, the travel memoir, the, the French stuff, the English stuff, Australian war, his commando service. And I also want to uh, uh, work on another memoir, which is uh, sort of uh, kind of going into what we were talking about before, which is that processing of material. In a different way, so, uh, so his voice and my voice, but um, but that whole idea of how lo- how how you actually do absorb information and stories um, and uh, reflecting on context and that sort of thing. I know I'm sounding really vague, but I haven't put like a synopsis together for that one yet. But mm-hmm. both of them both of them involved dad's writing because. As, as I said, there's a lot of his stuff to be worked <laughs> and, it, and
1: did your father name his manuscript? Did he name the travel memoir?
2: Yes, and this was what why I think it got put in the wrong box. Um, so the first name he gave it when it was commissioned by the Richards Press was France in the 50s. So it was sort of a travel memoir about living around France, all over France in the 50s, or 1948 to 1955. Um, but then he, he looked at... It looked like he'd written some notes on it in 1976, which is why it ended up in the 1976 box. And he renamed it Landscape with Australians. Mm. And I don't really go for either of those titles. Um, but then I found a little penciled um, possible title in one of the scraps of paper that was inside the manuscript that said, and maybe he'd had a few whiskeys when he wrote this, but it was um, France, Australia and a tall, tall man, because he was six three. Oh!
0: Oh, that's great. I like that too. Yeah. Well, it's been great having you on. I just want to give you an opportunity to tell people how they can connect with you. We've already mentioned that your book is available in Canada um, through Indigo. And I would imagine that you have a website and somewhere on social media that you'd like to hang out that people can find you.
2: Thank you. And can I just say thanks so much for having me and all your interesting questions. And i could talk about memoir and stories and history for as long as all day um, but it's night there. So I'm <laughs> on louisadesi.com and my Instagram is DC author. I think my Facebook is as well and yeah everything's on my website DC.com so if anyone reads uh, a letter from Paris and wants to know a little bit more I have a trailer with lots of photos and a little bit of video of the library in the in the trailer. Um, and yeah, I keep a memoir blog as well on com. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you. And thank you for listening. I hope you're enjoying this series. One of the reasons why I was interested in doing this series on memoir writing with Patty was because of the work I've seen Patty do with her clients and because I believe that our stories are important and sharing our stories can help other people on their journey. If you're interested, and I hope you are after hearing the first three episodes in this series, if you're interested in sharing your story, check out Patty's website, pattymhall.com. Stories are how we understand the world, and someone needs yours now. Patty can help you break the mystery of book writing into a process that works for you. From your first call with Patty, you'll come up with a powerful starting point for your writing, even if you have some pages already. So check her out, Patty M. Hall, and follow her on Instagram as well. And if you're interested in unpacking your story, before you do that writing or as you're doing that writing, check out my website, sandyreynolds.com. People pleasing can be a real barrier to sharing our stories. And if you're struggling with self doubt and worry about how people will feel if you share your story, I can help you work that through sandyreynolds.com.